This is Culture Matters in Malden, a new podcast that explores culture and arts as a lens to discuss important themes relevant to the Malden community. This is Poppy. This is Osa. And this is Culture Matters in Malden. Our guest today is Karen Krolock. She is executive director of Monkey House, an award-winning nonprofit that connects communities with choreography. Karen Krolock's choreographic creations have been featured in dance concerts, musicals, plays, films, galleries, and at site-specific settings across the country and occasionally abroad. Her reputation for nurturing individual expression while promoting safe physical technique has led to guest teaching opportunities at New England dance institutions, high schools, national colleges, and international workshops. After receiving a Somerville Arts Council Fellowship in 2009, She was selected to participate in three diplomatic delegations between Somerville, Massachusetts, and Tiznit, Morocco. I am delighted to speak with you. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time, ever since I learned about you online and then met you at the gallery. Um, That was many years ago. Um, I want to start with how you describe yourself, which you do quite eloquently on your website. But, I mean, you say you're a choreographer, mm-hmm. costume designer, you're a writer, mm-hmm. and you're a mentor. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the, the phrase that I've kind of begun latching on to because I think it captures things really eloquently is free-range collaborator. Um, because I realized that for me, even when I'm doing a solo on stage, it's always been a solo of how a person relates to a prop or to a costume or to a space that I never feel like I'm alone, which um, I'm not sure what that says about me, but I was born a middle child. So, you know, that kind of, I think that sense of always being in relation and in the middle of things has played out that way. But um, it also allows for a lot of possibilities within projects that I take on that um, what I like to think of is that all of the disciplines that I've trained in are just tools in a belt that I can pull out depending on what a specific project calls for rather than a definition of me. You talk about yourself as being voraciously curious and always wanting to learn in these engagements. Tell us a little bit about what that means and how it drives you, how it informs what you do and why you do it? Well, so um, one of my favorite uh, things that I kind of continue to look for are words in other languages that don't directly translate into English. And in Russian, there's a word, um, uh, pochamuchka, which is a person who asks um, the question why all of the time. And it's often like referring to a child in that stage of why, why that? Why is the sky blue? Why is the, why is blue the color? You know, um, But I feel like I never grew out of that stage. And so when I start working on a project, um, I'm always talking to people. My mom used to tease me that I would talk to a stump if I could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
And uh, with a stump talk back. Right. <laughs> it's a good question. Like her favorite thing to do when I would drive her a little crazy as a kid was just to hand me a microphone and have me go and record stories in a corner. Um, I was totally happy doing that for hours <laughs> on end. That was like a great mom trick for dealing with me as a kid. Um, and it taught you a lot, obviously. It did. Yeah. It did. And and so like when I'm working on a project, I will often have no idea where it's going to take me. Um, so for example, um, I was working as an artist in residence in a cemetery in Newton this spring, and um, they had never had an artist in residence before. Um, and what I had wanted to do was just interview everyone that worked there because I felt like most of us have no idea what's going on in cemeteries. You know, when we go there, it's never a good day, and we don't want to be there generally when we're there. And I feel like we don't think much about the people that work there and why they work there and what goes on with them. And the conversations that I had with people were so beautiful and stunning. Um, one of the things that came out one day was talking talking with um, the one of the groundskeepers who was going to be leaving. He'd been there for 38 years. And um, I had asked him about what was the most difficult part of his job. And he said, it's having to mow over someone's grave. Wow. Yeah, and I'd never thought about that. Like, of course it is. He was like, you know, you grow up and you're taught you walk around a grave. You don't, you know, you don't, but I have to because that's how you take care of it. That's how you maintain it for people. That's an important stage of things. And it was that starting point that then led to, and I was talking with some of the people that worked in administration who had said, so what are you looking to find? And I was like, well, things that we don't know about it. And so I talked about this issue with the the lawnmower. And the one person said, oh my gosh, I feel like such a jerk. And I was like, why? And he's like, because I often will kind of tease the lawn crew about the fact that I'll see them sitting on their mowers and not immediately starting to drive. And it's like a waste of gas and blah, blah, blah. And I've never thought about why they'd be doing that. And I said, you know, apparently it's because they're taking time to kind of get themselves emotionally and mentally prepared for that. And even within the community, they weren't having these conversations. And and then the thing that was totally amazing that came out of it was while I was talking with the people in the administration building, they brought out a book for me that was a hand-bound, beautiful book um, that uh, was about all the the mausoleums on the grounds. And I'm flipping through this book, and there are pictures, and there's text about who the people were who built the mausoleums, who the families were who commissioned them, what the iconography was. And I said to them, who wrote this book? And they said, oh, it's this woman named Kayla. Um, and they got really quiet. And I was like, because, you know, she was your first artist in residence. And they said, wait a minute, what? And I was like, she's your first artist in residence. Look at what she made for you. Where is she? And then they got really quiet. And I was like, what have I done wrong now? Well, Kayla had passed away and now is permanently an artist in residence there. She died from cancer um, quite young and um, had worked on this project as an internship when she was in graduate school. And I had said to them, so how many people have seen these books beside me? Because they should be shown. And they had said, you know, not many, because we don't want them to be out and around where they could get damaged. And I said, you know, the Newton Library, which is right next door to you, 
has an ongoing call for local exhibitions each year, um, we should submit an idea for an exhibition that would be something involving Kayla's work and something involving my work, because they usually need a living artist, around the idea of the cemetery. And when I reached out to the cemetery, I mean, to the library, they immediately said, don't go through a regular application process. We absolutely want to have an exhibition of this. Um, And come in, like, soon, and we'll talk about this. So in October, we're going to be doing um, an exhibition in the library that's um, parts of my research from having been um, artist in residence there, parts of Kayla's books, and parts of information about the cemetery and who else is there and why people might want to spend more time in this cemetery, which is actually a beautiful cemetery that was also um, an Olmsted project. Mm. Um, and a lot of the trees and things that are in the other Olmsted projects around Boston were actually started in the greenhouses there. And so it has this whole history of tying into places. But of course, we don't think of it or see it that way because of our associations with it being a cemetery. And so not only did I wind up learning a lot about the people that worked there, the um, types of things that they're dealing with that are often misunderstood or overlooked, um, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for the career choice to work in um, anything to do with death and dying and how we need to have more respect for those fields, but also wound up now creating this visual art exhibition at the library referring to an artist that I never had the privilege to meet in life but only discovered by working as an artist in residence at the cemetery. You know, that is... My brain is exploding with questions. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I mean, and the power of it, you know, I've never heard of a cemetery having an artist in residence program. Yeah, what is, can you explain that? So there actually are a couple that have them. Uh, Mount Auburn in particular um, has uh, a regular artist in residence program. When I approached the cemetery about this, my thought was, um, that it could be interesting to have an artist who was there for more than uh, just to be working on a piece of art to go into the cemetery. And so I had seen last year on the Mass Cultural Council's Higher Culture um, website that they were looking for someone to work in their administrative offices and thought, wait a minute, I've never even heard of this cemetery. Um, What is this? And so went out to look at it and realized this is a beautiful place. Um, and just sent them a thing saying, I've been working on a project that involves aspects of questions around mourning and our loss of language and our lack of language around that. Would you be willing to have an artist in residence there? And because they're at a point where cemeteries are getting to a space where the land issue is becoming really problematic in urban areas, that the amount of space that it takes for cemeteries and the types of space that you require for that is getting smaller and smaller. And as these cemeteries are getting to a point where they're no longer going to be actively taking in new people, how do they stay relevant to the communities that are there? They're taking up large swaths of land. How do we make them relevant? And how do we make them a place where they have a use for the communities that are there? And I feel like they could be an interesting, almost museum-like space to get us talking about questions of -of end-of-life issues, philosophy of life, of how we're living our lives and why we're making the choices that we're making, 
um, looking at different types of cultural understandings of life, death, mourning, etc., um, being able to look at um, how being in an outdoor space changes our understanding of our own place in the universe. Um, that true. I just think that there's a lot that's there that's really rich that we don't use those spaces for. And um, I wanted to see what would happen if we could find a partnership there. And so we got funding actually through the Newton Cultural Council. Um, and uh, we were able to kind of pilot this project to see what would happen. And to be honest, I had really no sense of what the outcomes would be other than I knew I would find something there. You know, it was such kind of uncharted territory for me. I knew I would find something. And is this, what discipline is this drawing upon this artist in residency. It sounds like there's some lit- uh, some writing. Is there any dance component? So there is. So the the overarching project is called the Dictionary of Negative Space, and it is um, a very unusual idea of a dictionary that instead of being um, words that is it's defining, it's identifying ideas that we haven't yet named that are related to loss and mourning and trauma. And um, trying to show what the struggle is for people who have survived trauma to be able to even communicate with people. That we already live in a culture that avoids and doesn't want to talk about death, dying, and loss. But even if you can find people, it's really challenging. And so the project began as an interdisciplinary kind of crossover between linguistics and socially engaged art. Um, I interviewed a number of people to kind of find the initial group of entries. I thought there would be 30 entries max and was really stunned when very easily I got over 100. And I'm now, wow. <laughs> I'm now close to 300. Wow. Um, and so I, I have tried to think about the way that the entries could be exposed to people because there are people that don't read dictionaries the way that I do. Um, so how do you get them engaged with the project? And so some of the entries will have illustrations that are photographs, or some of them will be um, found sound pieces. Uh, like I went to the Boston Marathon finish line at um, about the time uh, that the bombs went off for the five-year anniversary and mm-hmm. just recorded what it sounded like there. Wow. Um, and part of what's amazing and beautiful about that recording is it's people cheering on a bunch of people at the end of their rope. Like, it's such a beautiful metaphor for wow. what for what can be there. Um, I've also done some things in, like, installation art projects, um, and some of them have been dance pieces. So this winter, um, the dance complex in Cambridge had brought me in as an artist-in-residence through their IR program, Um, and had me do a kind of first draft of what a dance concert would be using the dictionary as a starting point. And um, it it was a very interesting and challenging project to put together because um, it's one thing to be able to have these entries in ways that are abstracted out of the body, and it's something else to be in the room sharing with people things that have happened. Um, And everyone who was in the show had 
some significant loss that they had been through recently, and that was part of why they were kind of chosen as collaborators. And so being able to look at what does it take to be able to, even in an abstracted form like dance, be able to share with people what you've been through, how is that different than having it be on a wall and not be told through your own body, through your own person? I love what you said about um, when you went to the cemetery and you asked, you know, how the other folks felt about, you know, the the people that were mowing the lawn. And it just made me think about how important it is to connect to people and for them to understand their stories, but also other people's stories, which made me think, like, is that a strategy that you use when creating art? Like, do you want people to look at it first and then have a deeper uh, understanding of it later? I do, actually. I feel like art to me is most successful when it reverberates in people. And um, and it's something that kind of you might see and think about in the moment, but then like three days later, you find yourself viewing something differently or understanding something differently. Right. Like, like on a really simple scale, there's a, a woman, Kelly Wallace, out in Nevada who... Um, was building a project using the inside of security envelopes. So you know when you get a, a letter from the bank or from a credit card on the inside. I don't open those. <laughs> <laughs> well, the inside of them has all of these little graphic patterns to them. And after um, after her father had passed away, there were a ton of these. And she began taking them apart and making them into these quilts that were using the outside like they were a, a texture of a pattern, like from a quilt material and made these security blankets out of these security envelopes and I just thought like that's brilliant and suddenly then like after I came home one day and had a piece of mail that had them then I was curious to see like what do they look like like I've never paid attention to these patterns like I'm fascinated with them now and I'm totally obsessed with the idea of like how how we think something that simple a little like scratchy line pattern is protection is fascinating you know um and how that has become this interesting metaphor within our world of what of what we think protects us and that way of how it continues to resonate and reverberate is is huge for me um and so like you know I look at things like that and feel like that's what I want is something that I I see somebody else's perspective and it makes me see my own world differently. Yes. And it's part of why I feel like artist talkbacks are really useful. I know some artists hate them. Um, it's but necessary. For, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like it allows for people to find their own way in and for artists to find more about what they're doing because we often don't see the, the widest range of what it is our work is saying to people. You know, we know what we're trying to say, but like everything else, there's kind of this spectrum of how it can be understood. And you only get that if you talk to people. Would you say that you're critical of your own work because of just thinking about (laughs) that that idea of, you know, not knowing how other people are going to see it and knowing how you see it yourself and then getting that feedback? So are you? Yeah, Yeah. super critical. Like, I I think that... um, I am probably the worst critic for my own work. And 
like one of the things that I find myself having to to say a lot um, when I'm mentoring people is, is like mentally saying like, oh, you should remember that. Like you should, you should hold on to that the next time you're building something. Because I'll say things that are totally generous and supportive and encouraging people. And then I get home to my own work and I'm like, oh my God, this thing, and this thing, and I like didn't do this. And you know, like it's, it's changed, it's changing a little bit, slightly how difficult I am on myself. But it is hard. Like when you can look at it from all of these different vantage points, then you want all of those different vantage points to be, you know, really understood. And nobody's like that. On right. that topic, <laughs> I I understand being critical. Um, but if you think about why you're doing the art, you had mm-hmm. said earlier, um, there's a significant reason. Like there should be a bigger reason than just the art itself. Yep. And um, first of all, you know, what is that objective, in, you know, generally speaking? And then second of all, how would you measure that success? Like if it's really achieved a purpose that you hoped for? Well, I think each project is really different. And I think that um, it's hard to measure until you've had some time out from things, which – I'm sure it kind of comes from being a performing artist and everything being time-based for me. Um, but, you know, for example, when I started Monkey House, which is a nonprofit that connects communities uh, to cu- choreography. We are going to get into that. Um, Definitely. <laughs> I started it initially to be able to be a place for choreographers to learn not just about how to choreograph, but how to actually give a piece of life like how do you remount it over time so that you're not just building it for one day and never doing it again how do you learn to be interviewed by people in a way that's going to actually communicate something how do you um invite people into the creative process whether it's collaborators for the sound for the light for the costumes to how do you work with audiences to make sure that you're actually connecting on something and so i feel like for that when I first started feeling like we were really successful, it wasn't, it wasn't because of grants or because of audience sizes. It was because other people in the company were starting to understand that culture and were starting to be able to embody that to other people. And not just the people on stage, but people that were audience members who would be coming and I would see them at intermission talking about the work to somebody else that they had just met in the audience. Um, When we had a question and answer after a show where two audience members were debating back and forth about what something meant in a piece and we on the stage weren't even talking, I was like, oh, we've done it. Like (laughs) we've taken a topic that people cared nothing about before and have them not just feeling like it's okay to be entitled to their opinions because it totally should be, but that their opinions are worth like really getting into a deep discussion with somebody about that they've never met. That's when I knew we'd done something. That's a great example. And uh, in that case, it's almost sounding like the the process and the process along the way is as important as a final product. And not just the process along the way, but the process after. Because mm, yes. I, I feel like that that's often sense. something that we don't think about. Like once we put our art out into the world, it's it's just beginning its journey. It isn't over. I like that. It, it's funny to me, occasionally um, 
I collect ceramics as well. And I'll reach out to a ceramicist that I've purchased something from and say, you know, I just want you to know it was part of this experience in my life. And I really Mm -hmm. appreciate that. And almost every single time I get something back that's like, I've never even considered what happens to my work. Mm. once it leaves you know I get really nitpicky about what it's going to look like and which pieces will sell and but I've never thought about how it's interacting with a person every single day and you know um and and how it can have this life out in the world and I feel like even with you know a movie or a song if you think about how those things affect us you know that is a journey that is totally beginning once it's released So now I, I want to, for a moment, go back to your beginning. What was your first creative urge, if you can remember? My very first creative urge. Was it the stories in the corner? Probably. <laughs> like, they could. You know, it's funny. Um, when I was a little kid, my mom um, made for us what she used to call the busy day boxes because um, I, I have two brothers, um, had two brothers, I guess. I still struggle with these mm. verbs. Um I'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, so I had two brothers growing up, and um, we were all very active minds. And my mom put together boxes of things that were just simple, like, artsy, craftsy things. Mine had the tape recorder in it. Um, And she would, you know, when we started getting antsy, would just pull down our busy day box, and we would have things that we could start making things out of. And so, you know, I remember at a very young age, um, one day – uh, going down into the basement with pieces of wood and glue and one nail and scratching words into the, the blocks of wood and then, like, decorating them with glue. Um, the one that my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, got just said life scratched into it with a bunch <laughs> of glue around the edges <laughs> that I apparently gave to him for Christmas. And he just thought it was so funny. <laughs> that is so hilarious. Um, that is adorable. You know, and so... I know that things like that were things that I started making really early. Um, And then I also know one of the very first projects I can really remember taking on was a book about flowers that were invented flowers that I made. And um, I would draw out all of these different shapes of flowers and then write these very scientific like things about where they were found and why they were found. And I was doing all of this research at libraries when my parents were My dad was a computer scientist and an academic, and my mom was um, a nurse practitioner who was going back to school when we were kids. So there was a lot of time when they were in academic libraries, and I would just be going around, like, gathering these things and photocopying and then, like, (laughs) copying them down and making these little books. So I know that those were early things that I made. That's great. So one of the things that fascinates me so much, and I could listen to you talk about (laughs) any number of things that you're talking about forever, because you find this intersection of potentially different things 
And there's a beauty in that intersection, and there's a creativity in that intersection, which opens up new doors of thinking and experiences. Like, I had never even thought about, I mean, I know they're, like, getting back to the cemetery, I know Mount Auburn is beautiful, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of artwork in a cemetery. But to c think about it as a place that we would go, that there are other things other than tombstones and things going on, that's just evocative to me. That's just, like, powerful. Um, so I, I just love that intersection that you That's captured. really my dad's mind. My, my father was a computer scientist, but he was, he was a really unusual thinker. Um, he, he almost never sat down in a room with people that he couldn't talk to about something. And uh, it, it could be something completely unrelated to anything that you would think he would know about, and he would be able to find a pathway in to connect and then start being able to understand problems that they were facing through a different group of problems that he'd studied. And, you know, during his lifetime, he worked on everything from uh, robotics problems uh, that, you know, became things that were used in factories to um, the... Uh, the board that everybody saw on 9-11 of where all of the air traffic was was a project that he had worked on um, to the Panama Canal when they had to when we were getting ready to pass that back to Panama he was one of the people that went down and took it from the analog system that it was and helped to be able to put that into a digital system um, and so he would work in these very different groups of people all the time um, and you know people People would often say he would sit in a room and he would be kind of quiet and you would think he wasn't even listening for a while to what was going on. And then he would say something that would be this really odd question, but it would frame things so that people who hadn't been understanding each other before could really make sense of things. And I feel like I'm very lucky that I inherited that from him. It's um, also this notion of the cemetery makes me think of what... I'm curious, curious about uh, from different people from different cultures is how they express these different parts of life that are a lot of times we don't want to talk about them. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And yeah, how can we make sense of uh, other cult use other cultures to help us to find better, more productive ways? Well, and, and realizing that there are so many different ways of understanding these things, you know, that we can get really locked into this. This is the way my family's done things for, you know, generation after generation. And for whatever reason, it doesn't make sense to me. And that there's another culture that you hear about and you're like, oh, that's exact. That's what I'm looking that for. That makes sense, right. Yeah, you know, right. and I feel like the more that we understand the broader sense of the world, the more that we find places where we connect into that and that makes sense to us and that it explains why, like, oh, that's really interesting that for my for my brother, this is something that I need, but for my aunt, this is something that she needs and this is what I need. And they don't have to be the same thing, but they are fulfilling the same purpose for each of us. You've had a lot of experiences. You've danced a bunch of different places, performed, uh, started your own company, uh, and we actually related off of just giving platforms to different creatives. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Monkey House. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of talk about how that got started, what inspired you, where it is today, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so a big part of what inspired me, um, and I hate to say this, but again, it's all about dead people. Um, so when I went to college at Northwestern, 
Uh, I had originally planned on being uh, an English major and wound up in linguistics. But while I was there, I um, could take as many dance classes as I wanted because the dance classes weren't credit classes, but they were all taught by professional artists, and they were amazing. So um, I thought I was giving up dance when I went to college because I didn't know that there was a career in dance beyond being a ballerina. And when I went and met these people, um, it totally changed my world. And unfortunately, most of my mentors died within a year and a half of me being there. Um, And there were a group of us who had all kind of come through together and who had begun being professional artists in Chicago who were trying to figure out how to be able to write grants and fund projects and, you know, figure out how to be able to take something from a small idea and develop it into a big idea that – work together to be able to help each other. And one of the things that I had said to my choreography mentor the last time that I had talked with her on the phone, she had said, you know, I don't want to talk about my illness. Um, She was dying from cancer. Uh, She said, I want to hear about what your dreams are and um, what is it you want to do? And I had said, "Uh, I want to form a laboratory for choreographers so that somebody can have the space to be able to explore things that you were talking about and be able to give us a place to build off of that. And I had no idea that it would be possible. It was just like the first thing that came to my mind. But I kept going back to that. Um, And when I um, when I moved to the Boston area in in the late 90s, um, I was really fortunate that I got a series of commissions. And when they happened, a friend of our family uh, had just lost her mom, and um, she gave me a donation for Christmas to be able to build a dance piece. And it was right before um, Y2K, and I had been commissioned by uh, Dance Umbrella, not just for their Boston moves, but for um, First Night to be able to perform and present pieces at the Emerson Majestic Theater. And... I felt like, okay, this is where I can start with this. With this money that I've been given as a donation, I can start trying to find a platform to help other choreographers. And it took a couple of years to get the, like, legal paperwork and a board together and all of that. Um, But we were able to start kind of in a ridiculous way where um, we got a performing opportunity in Philadelphia as a company And then I came back and I had injured myself right before we went to Philadelphia and I had knee surgery. And while I was recovering from knee surgery, I couldn't dance. So I began looking things up on the computer and applied to a whole bunch of festivals thinking we'll get into a few of them. And we got into all of them. (laughs) And so (laughs) in 2001, before um, we'd ever performed as a company here in Boston, we had toured to um, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Minneapolis, Winnipeg, and we were on our way out to Australia when 9-11 happened. So we got stuck in the country and had this ridiculous journey back once we could get a rental car from San Francisco. Um, But, you know, we'd had this massive experiences before we even got here. And the choreographers that were involved in the first generation of the company were able to take pieces that they had just created and bring them to all of these spaces and and learn about what happens when you're showing it to different people in different places with different ideas. And how do we kind of fine tune that? And how do you talk to people who may have never seen dance before? Um, Mm -hmm. And make it relatable. And, you know, that 
That then really launched things. Of course, it also was a terrible time to be starting a company because at that point, arts funding, you know, bottomed out because there were so many other massive needs. Um, And at that point, we really kind of looked at how do we take the idea of choreography and not just think about it for the stage, but think about it for how people live their lives. You know, the first language we learn is movement-based. You know, sound conversations comes after that, and written conversations comes beyond that. So how do we look at everyday activities as being choreographic acts and get people to recognize that if you can see and process movement, it will help you to see and process things in your own life differently. And we began working on projects within communities. And, you know, we've done everything from uh, uh, projects that have worked with um, senior centers to museums to um, schools for kids that are either been kicked out of other schools or having different types of emotional problems to halfway houses. I mean, we've done all kinds of different projects that look at how do you take a choreographic idea and make it relevant to a group of people. So, for example, one of the projects that we did when we were in residence at the Arlington Center for the Arts was with a um, a group there for people that were – living in a halfway house. Some of them had been incarcerated previously. Some of them were just there because they had been on parole in different ways. And they were brought in and we were working towards how do we use movement to be able to help them uh, understand interviewing and the process of applying for a job. And so we did a series of exercises where they would just mirror each other. They would sit in chairs and I move my hand and you move your hand and we move our bodies together and figure out what happens. And um, there was a young man in the group, and after we did this exercise twice, he shot his hand up in the air, and I said, you know, what do you want to say? And he was like, I hate this exercise. (laughs) And I was like, why? And he was like, because everybody is angry at me in this exercise. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. What makes you think everybody's angry at you? And he's like, they look at me like they're angry. And I said, okay, um." you know that they're mirroring you. Oh, my goodness. And he said, what? Because I wasn't angry. I was frustrated. And the person who was with them from, uh, from the uh, institution that they were at had said, wait a minute, can we talk about what happened last night to you? And when they started talking, there had been a fight that had erupted the night before between this young man and another person. And... What we eventually got to was that the kid that I was talking to had been frustrated about something. His frustration had looked like anger to somebody else. That person then got angry with him, and before long, they were fighting. And just by realizing this and thinking about, like, what does my face look like frustrated, and how does that translate to somebody else as what an angry face looks like, was a huge turning point for this kid. Now I'm I'm sort of thinking about Malden and mm-hmm. if if you you must have a lot of ideas since you're oh, you're do. you live in Malden <laughs> so please please tell us some of your ideas for Malden. Well, um, so first of all, uh, one of the programs that Monkey House has been doing in um, 
Medford has been a program with the senior center there of working on dance classes that are just um, classes that are getting seniors up and dancing and moving, but not in a way that's like for a performance, but just for them to be up and rethinking about their bodies are still active and lively and vital. Um, and then they've been going out and seeing dance concerts through that. And so we're looking to expand that with Medford, but we would love to try something like that here. And to be able to do something with that that wasn't necessarily just um, people from Monkey House going and teaching, but I think it would be great to have some of the local high school students, you know, as being a bridge between these different generations that don't necessarily have a whole bunch of ways of connecting. And yet there's so much we learn from one another and so much that we gain from just being in a room together. Um, I, I love th- you. You've got a fan base right, right. here. <laughs> it's mutual. It is absolutely mutual. <laughs> you know, um, one of the projects that I think would be really interesting is to kind of expand out. We did the Malden Dance Mile this year. Um, where we had um, used the the walk to the um, the bike path, yes, yeah. to be able to be a space for having people think about dance and movement. And I would like to be able to expand that out to have more groups, and not just um, dance groups in the way that we think of them as being from dance schools or being professionals. But you know, if there's a swing gr- class that's around, or if there's a um, group from the high school that is doing. Um, something from a musical that they want to redo there, you know, like of just finding ways that we all look at how much dance there is in this community and how much movement there is and how how is just using that path a way that all of us are choreographing a commute on a regular basis? And what are the mm-hmm. options there? What are the things that could make us think differently about that? You know, um, one of the examples I gave at a senior center a few years ago when I was teaching um, a little choreography workshop for them was I was saying, you know, what would happen if instead of thinking about having to like get out of bed in the morning and trudge to the bathroom and brush your teeth, if instead you rose from your bed and you floated (laughs) across the floor and then you did a cha-cha with your toothbrush, you know, like suddenly your day is off to a totally different start. I'm going to use that. And it's just... (laughs) It's just the verbs that you're using, you know, to just get people thinking about what are the verbs you live by. And so, like, that could be a whole class of working with the Malden Public Schools, which are all along that path, of, you know, getting them out, watching people, thinking about the verbs, thinking about the verbs they'd like to do, putting out a bunch of verbs, having different ways that those get done and maybe get crocheted together by some, like, women's group that go up. And then you have, like, murals that are there that get people thinking about it. And they could be in multiple languages because this is a community that is totally multicultural and would get you thinking about like what are the variations of these words when I say jump does that mean just jump to you or are there variations of that and get people really excited about how a very simple thing can be this cornerstone for bringing the community together. I can think of um, any number of other projects, you know, that yeah. you could be, like even intercultural exchange or intercultural communication. Yeah. So what is the dance that someone from Morocco might do when they meet someone versus exactly. someone from mainland China versus someone from Brazil or Haiti? And yep. they're, 
And what does that look like? How, you know, could one mirror that back and forth to... And how does that apply to things? You know, like when I look at problems that we have on a cultural spectrum in our country right now of things like Mm -hmm. the way that people are interacting with police, for example, and you think about how much of those conversations are not just verbal but are nonverbal. And if we had a way of being able to get people to think about this more so that they understand... You know, if you're approaching somebody and they're from X culture, there's a different space that once you cross into that, it feels like you're already argumentative. Exactly. You know, um, and if people had more of an awareness and appreciation of that, I think we could cut down on some of the um, places where before words are even said, we're already at odds with each other. Because I think that there's a lot that we are not understanding of what we think somebody else is saying by their body language mm-hmm. that is not something that we've talked about so we're not thinking very clearly about. How do you think we can do that? Well, like, for example, I think it would be really interesting if there was a way to um, do a project with um, perhaps uh, a police group, perhaps just like a um, uh, training group for the police that was movement-oriented, you know, to just get them thinking about that. That could be just literally going and watching dance concerts, not even having to dance themselves, but going and watching dance concerts and talking with choreographers before and after the show about what they're seeing, what they're noticing, and how body language is affecting things. Because there was a similar project that was done through Harvard for a while with their medical school where they were taking doctors into the Museum for Fine Arts, and they were looking just at paintings and what do you notice and what do you have to think about in order to be able to draw somebody. And part of what they began to realize is that people weren't looking at patients. They were just listening to what they had to say. And if you could sit and look at a patient and say, you know what, it looks like that person has pain here. It looks like this is happening here. Um, and start really paying attention to them on a physical level, you might hear differently what they're saying and think differently about symptoms. And I think that if you could do something like that with, um, with people that are in the front lines to be able to say, like, think about this differently, I think you could have some really tremendous results. There was, in fact, a project that was done um, about 20 years ago in Cambridge by a, a woman who was at Harvard who was volunteering at one of the homeless shelters in, in the area, she, um, in talking with the women who were coming in, noticed a pattern that a lot of the women who were coming in had been survivors of childhood sexual assault, that a lot of the women in her shelter who were um, not just in like a short-term homelessness situation, but had been long-term not able to have a home. And one of the things that she struggled with was that a lot of these women would go back out into living on the street and they would be with these very abusive male partners. And part of what she kind of discovered by talking with them is that they would often stay with somebody that they felt like was going to protect them, even if that person also was somebody who hurt them. And one of the things she also realized was by being at the shelter, she was meeting some of the police that were there. And in talking to the police, she was hearing about how they would get very frustrated because they would know that these women were being abused by their partners and they would try and get them out of there. And so what they would do is they would wait until they found a couple asleep and then try and wake up the woman to get her to go and get help. And then often the woman would get very combative. 
And so this young woman, who's a Harvard student, had said, um, I think it's because they used to get woken up in the middle of the night by people who sexually assaulted them. You've got a pattern of this. Like, how do we look at this? And so she created this hand-drawn animation, because she did not want to expose who these people were, a hand-drawn animation of the story of a few of the people that were there. And... Um, she then, when she finished it as part of her undergraduate thesis project, she then shared it with the Cambridge police, who then began sharing it with police all over the country and led to a conversation about how do we intervene differently when we know that a homeless woman is being abused so that we are not re-triggering this problem at a time when we're trying to offer help. And I think that it's exactly those moments of thinking that we understand something and understanding that the police in that moment of trying to wake that person up and safely get them away had great intentions and that, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it sometimes doesn't matter what the intention is. It's what is being read in both of those spaces. And being able to look at that and come up with different solutions, I think, is exactly what we need right now. And I think it's something that could apply in so many so ways. many different interactions yeah. with police and then also just with regular people. people exactly because i think that we're such a multicultural landscape in this country that we often don't think about the fact that our body language is totally different and how close i stand to you for for you may be comfortable but for me you know it may mean that i'm being threatened or mm -hmm. um that the way that someone looks at me when um it's broad daylight can be totally different than how threatened I feel if it's, you know, darker and I can't see well. And so all I'm getting is like the shape of their shoulders. You know, yeah. like there's all these ways that we don't think about that. And I think we could be more articulate with our bodies and use them for a better benefit if we had more intelligence about the way we were using them. Culture Matters in Malden is recorded in the studios of Urban Media Arts, formerly known as MATV. For more information about this and other episodes, visit matv.org slash culturematters or follow us on Instagram, Spotify, and SoundCloud. <laughs>